0: For those of you hardy daveners who come to Shul on the seventh day of Pesach, first of all, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Second of all, there's a lot of kiddish food waiting for you. And third of all, I wanted to um, share with you not only a love story, but a double love story, a Pesach- Double love story is your reward for coming to Shul on the seventh day of Pesach. But before I can tell you the double Pesach love story, we have to talk about a little bit of Halacha, Jewish law. And when was the last time I did that on this bima? (laughs) But we need to go there to Halacha. As you know, the Torah commands us not to possess any chametz on Pesach. And as you know, chametz is defined as the five species of grain, wheat, rye, oats, spelt, and barley. Those are the five grains of chametz, and you can't have them on your possession. So it's not just that you can't eat them, you can't own them. Your house has to be chametz-free. Now, all of us have had the experience, and we all had this last week, when we're cleaning out our house and our kitchen, especially for Pesach, and you reach in at the very back of the cabinet or the pantry, and you see, behold, crackers that expired in February of 2020. Pre-pandemic crackers. Lord, they got lost in the back of the cupboard. And then we're just very grateful that Pesach comes around once every year to inspire us to do a deep kitchen cleaning. Then we throw out the pre-pandemic crackers. But what do you do with the crackers that are perfectly good, and with the pasta that is perfectly good, and with all your chametz that is perfectly good during Pesach? And now we're on the horns of a dilemma because there's two principles that are in tension. One is you cannot possess any chametz. The second is you can't waste, called bal tashri. You're not supposed to waste good food. So the genius of Jewish law, the halacha, is it comes up with a legal fiction which can solve our problem. It is only Jews, after all, who are commanded to have no chametz in their homes on Pesach. Our beloved non-Jewish friends and beloved non-Jewish colleagues and neighbors are not so commanded. I mean, they could just have pizza morning, noon, and night. They violate no laws of the Torah. They're not Jewish. And so this, there's this mitzvah called Mechirat chametz, where we sell our chametz to a non-Jew, and they own our chametz during Pesach. Now, there's a man named Dan Nessen who loves this mitzvah, who cannot get enough of this mitzvah, starting about Thanksgiving, Dan will start announcing that it's not too early to start selling your chametz. And just so that you know, um, all secrets are gonna be spilled on the seventh day of Pesach. (laughs) Dan sells our our chametz to a wonderful non-Jewish receptionist named Rhiannon Thomas. She can have all of our chametz. And if you uh, did a document that empowers Dan to to be your agent, he sells your chametz to Rhiannon so that Rhiannon technically technically, could go into your home, walk down to your basement, eat your crackers, drink your scotch, drink your fine Macallan 25 scotch, if you have said bottle, and it's within her right because she is the owner of your hummets. Of course, that doesn't happen. It's a legal fiction, but what that means is that by tomorrow night, when Dan buys back your chametz. What we have done with this legal fiction is we have gestured towards two truths. Number one, we have not owned any chametz during Pesach. Check, because Rianon had it. Number two, we have not wasted any food. You didn't have to throw out perfectly good food. It's all yours as of tomorrow night when Yantef is over. Okay, what does that dry legalism have to do with a love story, let alone a double love story? So, The Wall Street Journal last week had this fabulous article about the particular challenges of, this is a little bit niche, but the particular challenges of observant Jews who are dog owners and love their dogs. And here's the nature of this particular challenge. Um, It turns out that dog food, rovers can of dog food, is pure chametz right? Rover's dog food is made with the five species of grain. Now, of course, we humans don't eat Rover's dog food, but again, the prohibition is not just eating it, it's owning it. So therefore, if Rover is at your house, and if your cans of Rover's dog food are in your house, then now you have chametz in your possession. What is somebody who both cares about the details of the Passover observance and also loves Rover and wants to feed Rover, what are they supposed to do? So the Wall Street Journal article has three options. Option one is you can sell Rover to Rhiannon for eight days. And now not only can Rhiannon eat your crackers and drink your scotch, she owns Rover. She owns your dog, Rhiannon owns your dog. Um, And that totally works Legally. And you also sell her, by the way, Olive Rover's dog food. Rhiannon owns the, 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 the dog and the dog food. And so even though the dog and the dog food are in your home, it's not your Chameitz, it's her Chameitz because of the Mechirat Chameitz legal fiction. That works legally. It just doesn't work emotionally to sell a beloved member of your home, your dog even symbolically, and even for eight days, which led to the second option. The article tells the story of observant Jewish owners who had a 70-pound brown Labrador named Bucky, and the idea of selling Bucky was just not workable emotionally for them, and they didn't want to have chametz that was feeding Bucky on their premises, so they changed Bucky's diet, Air of Pesach, to feed him a different kind of food that didn't have the grain. The only problem is it gave him severe canine gastrointestinal distress. And that turned out to be a problem for Bucky and for Bucky's owners, especially when the distress manifested during the seders. Which means that we need a third move And that is why this article is in the Wall Street Journal. There was a sleepy dog food company called Evangers. It was a sleepy dog food company. And then this couple spotted a business opportunity, again, niche. We're going to buy this sleepy dog food company. And we're going to help it develop kosher for Passover, excellent dog food. And so it worked with the Chicago Rabbinical Council, and it got rabbis to come to the dog food factory and to certify that these cans of dog food are kosher le Pesach. And it worked, and the company grew 7x. They had 10 employees when they bought it. When they started creating this niche practice of kosher le Pesach food, they now have 70 employees. And now, if you are a kosher for Pesach dog owner, you get your evangelist food and your dog is in your house and is your beloved dog. You don't have to sell your dog. And the food is good and excellent. It's a nutritional choice. A perfect solution. Now, you may think this story has a very limited appeal. (laughs) You may think that this story can only work for the very limited universe of very observant Jews who are very loving dog owners. But I want to step back and say I think this story has a broader truth and a broader application. That applies to all of us. The persons who are affected by this have two loves. They love Pesach, and they love the rituals of Pesach, and they love their dogs. And because they love Pesach and they love their dogs, paying more for kosher pesach dog food makes perfect sense. And so it is with love, that's the thing about love, that when you really love somebody, you do stuff for that person that you love or for that being that you love that makes perfect sense to you, but that does not make sense to the rest of the world. To you who is in the relationship, to you who feels the love, what you do, makes perfect sense, I get it. But if you're not in that relationship, what is that? It makes no sense at all. So, for example, in this case, the person who doesn't get Pesach would say, what's the big deal? Just feed your dog regular dog food. How could God care about dog food and whether the dog food is kosher if you don't get Pesach? And if you don't get dogs, you say, what's the big deal? Sell your dog. It's just symbolic anyway for eight days. What's the big deal? You still have your dog. What's the big deal? That's the person who doesn't get dogs. But if you get dogs and if you get Pesach, you get exactly what it is that you're doing and why. In other words, the things we do for love. And the things that we do for love, we understand. And the things that we do for love that we understand are especially meaningful when it just fits into our dynamic with our loved one and the rest of the world is scratching their head and does not understand it. And we all do this all the time. So when our adult kids come in for Pesach. And they fly out at 6 a.m. And we wake up at 4.30 in the morning to drive them to Logan, even though they could take an Uber. That's a thing we do for love. Here's another thing we do for love. I've heard this from so many families. You know, this is a hockey town. Jewish parents, their kids, their teens play hockey. Here's the deal if you have a teenager who's a hockey player you need ice time, and ice time is very limited. And so you wake up at 5 in the morning, and you drive 45 minutes to some ice rink, and then you're sitting freezing cold while your teenager skates, and then after an hour, you drive another 45 minutes, and you do that week after week after week. It's a thing we do for love. And on the other end of life, if you have a parent... A beloved parent who is never cognitively impaired in their last chapter. And they no longer recognize you. They no longer know that you are there when you are there. And yet you get in an airplane, and you fly, and you endure all the hassles of travel to get to see them in the city that they live in. Mom, dad, I'm here. And they don't recognize you but you recognize them, and you know you. That's a thing we do for love. Nobody else could get it, but you get it. What are the things you do for love that other people don't get? Because it's the things that we do for love that other people don't get that add the most meaning, and the most intensity, and the most purpose, and the most mission to our life. I know the world doesn't get it, but I get it. It's the things we do for love, and that's what matters most in the world is that you have that in your life. Now, tomorrow is Yisker, And part of the poignancy of Yisker is that we remember the things that the people who loved us did for us for love. The times they carpooled us morning, noon, and night, the times that they cooked us stuff, they made us fresh meals, and they didn't have the energy. The way that our dreams were their dreams. Our pain was their pain. Our joy was their joy. And there's so few people in the world who love us that way. For the most part, this is a cold world and a big world and in an indifferent world. For the most part, most people don't love us that way. They don't regard us. They don't see us. They don't care. They don't do crazy things for us because they love us. And the poignancy of Yisker is that somebody who loved us that way, and there's so few of them, no longer here. And that poignancy is real. But what's also real is that the measure of life is love. And the measure of life is a relationship. And the measure of life are the crazy things that you would do for somebody because you love them. But because you love them, they're not crazy to you and not crazy to the person that you do them for. And that kind of love is not fixed. And that kind of love can grow. So here's the question. What do you do for love? Where do you go beyond? Because it is beyond where the greatest joy of life is found. Chag